Wampole and the Vanishing Jura by John Mortimer. With Timothy West as Horace Rumpole and Prunella Scales as his wife, Hilda. The proudest of our national treasures to rank with Wordsworth, the plays of Shakespeare, and the great British breakfast, that is to say, the jury, is not, of course, a single twelve-headed monster swinging from one side to the other until it arrives with ponderous deliberation at its single-minded decision. It is a random collection of disparate individuals. Ernest John Hooper. I swear by Almighty God, I will faithfully try the several issues between our Sovereign Lady the Queen and the prisoner at the bar, and give a true verdict according to the evidence. The jury may include telegraph-reading accountants, well-meaning teachers of sociology who were started the day with organic muesli and the Guardian, a jobbing builder who would like to see the black cap put on at the end of all murder trials, a Sikh minicab driver, a trouser-suited businesswoman with the Financial Times, and a hairstylist from a unisex salon whose jeans seem in constant danger of sliding off her narrow hips. Often these apparently predictable types can spring surprising verdicts. The muesli-eating professor may believe that prison works, and the builder may be a stickler for the presumption of innocence. Joshua McIntyre. I swear by Almighty God I will faithfully try the several issues between our sovereign lady the Queen and the prisoner at the bar and give a true verdict according to the evidence. The barrister's most difficult decision is always whether to encourage your potential friends on a jury, to favour them with the first triumphant look when you score a palpable hit in cross-examination, and so strengthen their sinews and summon up their blood for a fearless acquittal, or should you devote all your energies to converting your enemies. Marcia Brewster. I swear by Almighty God I will faithfully try the several issues between our Sovereign Lady the Queen and the prisoner at the bar and give a true verdict according to the evidence. Marcia Brewster was a woman, probably in her fifties, who in the trial always arrived a little late, as though she'd overslept or been involved in the usual immobility of the circle line. She would push her way, murmuring apologies, past the knees of frozen-faced jurors and then flash me the friendliest smile. <laughs> One that not only wished me well, but promised her full attention. So, as you can imagine, I concentrated on stoking the fires of Marcia Brewster's admiration in the hope that she would warm the cold hearts of fellow members of the jury. All was going well, until one morning, in the middle of the trial, as rare things will, she vanished. But I'd better go back to the beginning. The events that led us to that trial in number one court of the Old Bailey. The day my solicitor, Bonnie Bernard, and I were crossing the yard at Brixton Prison to visit a client accused of murder. It was two men jogging across Hampstead Heath, you say? Yes, and their terrier dog, who was rooting about in the undergrowth. 
they found the dead body of a girl, Pamela MacDonald. Born in Kilburn of Jamaican parents. Found to have died as a result of manual strangulation. Single parent mother, part-time actress, lap dancer. What may that mean, Mr. Bernard? Nothing to do with Lapland, I suppose. Uh, well, not exactly, Mr. Rumpole, no. So, did she dance in people's laps? In close proximity to. Yes. Useless, there's no everything. Our client, Mr. Skeet... Yeah, Neville J. Skeet, he always calls himself. Beats me why I should have wanted to kill a young girl he'd never really met. Uh, don't you worry, Bonnie Bernard. That's what we're here to find out. Mr. Skeet, you work as a clerk in the public record office. I'm not proud of that, Mr. Rumpole. My pride, my joy, lies in the fact that I am president and founder member of the League of Ninth-day Elamites. Hmm. Bit of a strange name, though. The people of Elam, led by their king, put the foul people of Sodom and Gomorrah to the sword and burned their cities to the ground. You will remember that, Mr. Rumpole. A uh, little before my time, I'm afraid. Uh, anyway, what do you Elamites find to do now that Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed? Uh, they are not destroyed, Mr. Rumpole. Hmm? That's where you've made your big mistake. They have risen from their horrible ashes and been built again. Really? Where exactly? In central London, Mr. Rumpole. Right here. And in some of the godless suburbs. I wonder which. The evidence suggests that you shouted abuse and threats outside various gay bars, strip shows, massage parlours and... Uh, what do they call the activity again, Mr Bernard? Lap dancing. That's right, lap dancing restaurants. We usually call clubs, actually, Mr Rumpole. Sinks of iniquity, I call them. I visit various sinks of iniquity. I warn them that the Lord will strike them with the sword of justice. And your visits included the crazy crocodile behind Leicester Square, the place where Pamela MacDonald danced around laps. I gave a warning to that sewer, that temple of sin, that tabernacle of serpents. Mm, I'm sure they'd be flattered to be called that at the crazy crocodile. Miss MacDonald worked there regularly. The statement of the club's bouncer suggests that you always waited for her in particular to come out. I waited to warn her. Did that warning also entail calling her the Whore of Babylon? I called her that on many occasions, when I was outside that slime pit. You promised her an early death? I did. And my promise was fulfilled. Because you killed her? <laughs> no, Mr Rumpole. I never killed her. Would you be prepared to say that you greatly regret her death? No. I don't regret her death, Mr. Rumpole. In fact, I rejoice in it. You think she deserved to die because she went lap dancing? She behaved as I named her, the Whore of Babylon. How do you know? I've never seen anyone lap dancing. Have you, Mr. Skeet? Of course I haven't. So you would have condemned her to death for something you know absolutely nothing about. Is that what you're really saying? I know very well what she did. She reveled in it. That's what I know as the truth. She reveled in the sins of the city. So she had to die. Not my decision, Mr. Rumpole. The decision of one greater than I... What the prosecution are saying is that you might have taken her life into your hands and strangled Pamela MacDonald. I might have, Mr Rumpole. I might have done anything. But those above me had other plans for her. That is all I have to say. I looked at my client. What on earth was I to do about him? 
I had never, in all the long years I had spent round the criminal courts, come across a customer for whom I felt more good, old-fashioned, honest loathing. So the answer to my question was, of course, that I must defend him to the very best of my ability. I've been talking to Dr. McKintock about you. I was right. Oh, yes? Pleased, was he? That I'm back again in full working order? I'm not sure you are in full working order, Rumpel. Not sure at all. That's why I had a word with Dr. McClintock. He said he hadn't seen you for some time. Not this year, he said. Can that be true? Possibly. At my age, you steer clear of the quack, in case he tells you you've got something you didn't want to know about. Dr. McClintock asked me if you seem to be short of breath after taking exercise. Well, you know the answer to that. I never take exercise. Yes, Dr. McClintock was deeply shocked when I told him that. He insists you must exercise. Quite right. I remember that. I do take a brisk stroll round to the tobacconist in Fleet Street to buy my small cigars. Oh, don't talk rubbish, Rumpole. What the doctor recommends in your case is some light bicycling. Oh, I'm afraid that's impossible. To go bicycling nowadays, you have to wear a hat shaped like a Brazil nut and rubber shorts black with a sort of white line down them. I couldn't possibly turn up in chambers dressed like that. Rubbish, Besides which, I might be run into by a bus or asphyxiated by petrol fumes. I, I gave up bicycling long ago, even before I did the Penge bungalow murders. You're not going to bicycle out on the street, Rumpole. You will be on a stationary bicycle. It won't be going anywhere. What on earth's the point of that, then? Has his anxiety about my health caused the good Dr. McClintock to lose his marbles? The point of it, Rumpo, is to help you to train yourself up, to lose some of that unnecessary weight, to open up your tubes and help your breathing, to make you sweat a little and get to know your own body. I've taken up joint membership at the Lysander Health Club in Iverna Gardens. They do special terms for married couples, two for the price of one. They've got exercise bikes, of course, oh. as well as all the other I, I, I'm afraid I've got to go, Hilda. I've got a case starting down the old baby. At that moment, murder seemed a far more attractive proposition than the Lysander Health Club. In a bizarre world of fire and brimstone, cities fallen into sin, and a beautiful woman condemned to an arbitrary death, court number one at the Old Bailey seemed, on the morning the trial began, to be an oasis of sanity. It was presided over by Mr Justice Sloper, known as Beetle, because of the strong lenses which gave his eyes a bulging and insect-like appearance. The prosecution was in the hands of Adrian Hodinot, a tall and languid learned friend who always said that he stayed at the bar merely to keep his great Dane Ophelia in the state to which he had become accustomed. The defendant skeet members of the jury adopted the practice of shouting abuse at such places as gay bars and massage parlours. My lord, I submit that this case has nothing whatever to do with gay bars and massage parlours. A person may object to many institutions. In my case it might be banks, fast food outlets and piped music in lifts. But such strong feelings might well fall far short of the tendency to murder. <laughs> I saw Marcia Brewster stifle a giggle with the back of her hand. Beetle Sloper glanced at her from the bench and seemed impressed with the success of my objection with a front-row juror. Yes, Mr. Hodinot. I think Mr. Rumpole has a point there. 
Perhaps you should confine your evidence to the place of entertainment, where it is suggested that death threats were uttered against Pamela MacDonald, the crazy caterpillar. Crocodile, Milan. What did you say? It's called the crazy crocodile. <laughs> yes, of course it is. The beetle seemed only mildly irritated. It was an exchange typical of the vague misunderstandings which haunt all criminal trials. What was more unusual was what I noticed in other parts of the court. Recovered from her giggle, Marcia was looking up at the public gallery. The character who seemed to have attracted her attention was a fair-haired man, perhaps in his thirties, wearing a dark suit and with a tan which looked as though he might have lived in a climate sunnier than that of London, the city of sin. He was listening carefully, taking notes, and seemed to have some deep interest in the trial. Mr. Parkin, during your duty as doorman and bouncer of the crazy crocodile, did you hear my client call Pamela MacDonald the Whore of Babylon? I believe Babylon did come into it, yeah. Was there a good deal about smiting the cities of sin? He was threatening her. There were a lot of words. I didn't pay all that attention to him. My favourite juror, Marcia Brewster, was watching my performance with approval. Perhaps you could help us about this. Wasn't a great deal of what he was saying quoted from the Old Testament of the Bible? I wouldn't know about that. It sounded like threats to me. A great deal of the Old Testament does consist of threats, does it not, Mr. Rumpole? Exactly, my lord. There's a great deal about smiting and destroying with fire and brimstone, but I don't believe anyone feels threatened when they hear it read out in church on Sunday. <laughs> my fan in the jury box gave me a small chuckle. What I'm suggesting is that Neville Skeet was denouncing London as a wicked city in a general sort of way. He has told us that he heard your client threatening to kill Pamela MacDonald. Mr. Parkin, haven't you ever heard these words, I'll kill you, used by many people when they mean nothing of the sort? What are you on about, exactly? A mother, angry with her child. I'll kill you if you don't sit still on the bus. Or someone at work. I'll kill that plumber if he doesn't turn up this afternoon. I suppose I've heard something like that at times. Yeah. And let's be quite clear about this. You never saw him attack her or even touch her in any way. He never touched her so far as I could see. No. Thank you, Mr. <clears throat> I sat down. What more could I do? Through all this evidence, Neville J. Skeet sat in the dock, motionless, his great crude hands folded in his lap, his face only betraying the satisfied smile of those who feel sure they have God on their side. You did all right with that, witness, Mr. Rumpo. Mm, bricks without straw, I'm afraid. Or perhaps, but you, you do make them well. <laughs> we were trying to console ourselves with slices of cold pie and pints of Guinness in the pub opposite the Old Bailey when I heard a voice behind me. It's an education to watch you in action, Mr. Rumpo. What? I turned to see a sun-tanned face, a helmet of fairish hair, and to meet the white-toothed smile of a boyish man in a dark, fashionably tailored suit. As a very junior member of the legal profession, it would be an honour to buy you two hard-working gentlemen your lunch. Oh, no, really. No, I insist. Oh, very well, then. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so, then, uh, where do you carry on your practice? Abroad, mainly. Middle East. Arab Emirates. Oh. <laughs> All commercial work. I'm afraid you'd find it very dull. Hmm. I just happened to be in England, and I read you were defending a murderer. He's not a murderer yet, not till he's found guilty. Still, it's only a matter of time, isn't it? It was then that I remembered where I'd seen him, 
Of course, he was the man in the public gallery. The man my favorite juror stared at during the trial. You've been listening to the evidence? Oh, I wouldn't miss a moment. I so admire the way you're making a hopeless case sound as though it actually had a run. I don't think you'll know whether or not there's a run until the jury come back. You may be surprised yet. But you must know yourself, Mr. Rumpo, with all your great experience of the law, that poor old religious maniac hasn't got a hope in hell. We're not in hell. We're in number one court at the Old Bailey. And there's always hope until the jury gives us a verdict. I've been looking at the jury. They can't wait to sink you. I'm not sure you're right. I think I've got at least one friend. Oh, her. <laughs> She's not going to come for much, is she? What? Uh, look, I've got the dash. I've got some calls to make before two o'clock. Oh, well, well thank, thanks again. Yeah, thank yeah. you. As he swept up his change from the counter, I saw a sun-browned hand, a wrist decorated with a discreetly expensive watch, a glittering cufflink, and he was gone. No doubt to make his calls and then climb back to the public gallery before I even had a chance of asking his name. Smart young man. Mm, he's obviously done all right out of the law. <laughs> do you know, I think I should do a bit of research one evening round that uh, crazy crocodile club. This might be an idea. Mm. You know, there's something curiously unnerving about this case. I've got a friend in the jury and now a fan in the public gallery. And she keeps looking at him, but not as though she liked him very much. Mm. Apart from that, what are we meant to think? That Neville Skeet waited about on Hampstead Heath in the faint hope that the whore of Babylon would come strolling by so that he could strangle her? <laughs> does seem a little unlikely. Mm. There's too much we can't explain. I suppose we might learn something in this crazy crocodile club. Yes. We? You don't want to be bothered with a place like that, uh, do you, Mr. Rumpole? No, I think perhaps I should. The girls who worked with Pamela might know something. Yeah, I, sh I should think so. I should think they must know um, quite a lot. But we had more immediate problems in court. The evidence of one of my client's companions in Brixton Prison. <laughs> Mr. Phelps, are you telling this jury that Neville Skeet confessed to murder... As you and a number of other prisoners sat around watching television. Well, that's right. It seemed that the sight of a girl in EastEnders reminded him of her. You mean otherwise he might have forgotten? How many other prisoners heard him? I don't think no one heard. He spoke very low, you see. Just to me, alone. So we can take it you were the only witness to this conversation? Just me that heard it, yes. Hmm. You've had a pretty eventful career, haven't you, Mr. Phelps? In and out of prison? I've been in a bit of trouble and what have you, yes. What have I? What have you, Mr. Phelps? Let's see. Four sentences for fraud, four for obtaining money by false pretenses, obtaining a false document with intent to deceive... And now you're in Brixton, awaiting trial on a charge of the fraudulent conversion of a vast quantity of frozen food ordered by you on credit for a restaurant that was discovered not to exist. I'm defending that one. I wish you luck. <laughs> Marcia Brewster liked that and gave me a small congratulatory giggle. I even noticed smiles on some usually hostile jury faces. So, it comes to this, doesn't it? Time and time again, you have been proved beyond reasonable doubt to be a fraud and a swindler. If you like to put it that way, yes. Oh, I do like to put it that way. 
I'd like to make it clear to the jury that my client's so-called confession depends on the word of a convicted liar. I, I honestly did hear him say it. Honestly? Have you any idea what that word means? I told you what I heard, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, you've got to stick to it, haven't you? What do you mean? I mean that this is a case where the police are desperate for a conviction. The only trouble is that they haven't got much evidence. Did anyone offer to go easy on your problem with the frozen food if you were kind enough to remember a convenient confession? They did say they wouldn't go so hard on me, yes. Not if I gave evidence. Thank you. His answer had two immediate results. The smile on number three juror's face broadened considerably, and there was the sound of a disturbance in the public gallery as the sun-tanned, gold-watched, youngish lawyer from the Arab Emirates left in what seemed like a hurry. When that day's proceedings were over, I was in an old Bailey lift with Bonnie Bernard when number three juror got in, just as the doors were closing. She smiled at me, and I gave her a vague smile back. Then, to my horror, she opened her mouth and spoke. Mr. Rumpole... Well, I, no, no, you, you mustn't. You can't possibly talk to me. I, I'd have to tell the judge. Yes, ma madam, madam, please don't. She turned away from me then and said no more. When the lift stopped, we got out and went our separate ways in silence. But if I had listened to what she had no doubt intended to say, it might have saved a good deal of trouble. There seemed to me to have been a time in my boyhood when bicycling was a source of pleasure. Not struggling up a hill, of course, not pedalling through rain with frozen fingers on a slithery road, but coasting down a gradual incline on a spring morning with a light breeze behind you and the three-speed rally ticking away happily. But bicycling in the Lysander Club was a different story. There was no fresh breeze, no bright green leaves of spring, merely air conditioning, piped music, and a pervading smell of massage oil. There was a little clock on the handlebars of the bike, which I was instructed to keep flickering above a certain mark. It was, I'm afraid, dropping like my spirits, as my journey began to feel like a long path uphill to infinity, when a voice behind me called out, Oh, well done, Rumpole. We'll have you in the Tour de France yet. I turned to see Lucy with an eye. Our chamber's head of marketing, wearing thick leggings as though equipped for a hike through Outer Mongolia. <laughs> Lucy, you're not a fellow sufferer at the Lysander Club. Oh, yes, I am. I persuaded Hilda to get you to join, too, when we mm. talked at the last chamber's party. We've been having such fun here together. Fun? You have fun with Hilda? <laughs> of course. Don't you? <laughs> In a manner of speaking. She said she'd feed me on nothing but organically grown rocket salad and vegetarian rissoles, unless I promised to spend at least an hour in the gym. I suppose you might call that fun. It's because she loves you, Rumpole. She wants you to keep fit now that it seems you're not going to die. Hmm? Come on, I'll buy you a coffee. By the way, Hilda, <clears throat> exactly... 
Why did you want me to spend my time peddling away uselessly in the Lysander Club? I told you, Rumpo. I'm not sure you did. I want you to lose weight. That, of course. To open your tubes and help your breathing make you sweat a little. I know that. But didn't you have something else in mind? Some other motive, perhaps? I really don't know what you mean. Lucy thought you might have had some other reason. Lucy doesn't know nearly as much as she thinks she does. You won't mind if I go out this evening? Uh, of course not. You know Lizzie Card, you? I was at school with her. You were at school with so many people, Hilda, I find it hard to keep up. Well, Lizzie's daughter's got this wonderful little boy, Tom, only five and he can stand on his head. A future Prime Minister. And they're all going outside babysitting. You don't mind, do you, Rumpel? No, not at all. I'll be out anyway. Lap dancing. Don't be silly, Rumpel. You know, you're not nearly as funny as you think you are. Darkness. Throbbing music. The almost complete absence of conversation. These were the things that greeted us as we sat down to our dinner in the crazy crocodile. Then I noticed that Bonnie Bernard was staring at a row of the sort of poles down which firemen slide rapidly when the alarm rings. Scarcely dressed young women were climbing up and down such poles with little gasps of affection. We ordered fish and chips, and my instructing solicitor, who had taken the trouble to check up on the rules of the establishment, outlined the program ahead. You get one of the girls to come over and dance for you, Rumpole, then you give her ten pounds. What? Just for dancing with us? Uh, not with us, Rumpole. She dances by herself. You could watch her, but absolutely no touching allowed. You understand that? Oh, of course. I, I certainly wouldn't dream of it. It does seem odd, though. Not the sort of rule that existed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Was Mr. Skeet simply wasting his breath when he called for fire and brimstone to destroy this apparently respectable eatery? Yes, very probably. Shall I ask one of them for a dance, Rumpo? What I'd really like to ask for is a chat. It was odd how easily both requests could be satisfied. Bernard sent a message by a waiter to a girl who gave her name as Christine and duly appeared beside our table. Sliding out of most of what remained of her clothes, she began to dance in a sinuous manner for our benefit. Hello, I'm Christine. Oh, hello, Christine. Uh, I, I understand that you were a friend of Pamela O'Donnell's. Oh, yes. It was so terrible about Pamela. Yes. Oh, the girls all loved her. She was a good friend to all of us. Pamela and I had a lot in common. Oh, what exactly? Oh, we both worked together. You know, on the stage. Oh, you might have caught my mother carriage at the Bricklayer's Arms in Kilburn. It was only a small part, but I think I was quite effective. Did you see it? Intense pressure of work. I've missed all the best things in the theatre lately. Too bad. So... You didn't see Pamela in Dr. Faustus? I'm afraid not, but talking of Pamela... Oh, poor Pam. I just wonder about her son. Is he all right? Cameron? Oh, he's great. Oh, he's going to be a terrific guitarist. There is someone to look after him. Absolutely. A good friend of Pam's. An older woman. Very responsible. Ah. She loves Cameron. And he loves her. She lives quite near me. We'll do our bit to help. So that's all right. Well, 
It will be as long as no one tries to take him away. Is anyone likely to? Oh, yes. It's Dad. Ah. Oh. Pam was always afraid he'd try to take Cameron. Oh. Oh. Nice talking to you. I've got to go. Oh, uh, there you are, my dear. Uh, oh, bless you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Good night. Bernard handed Christine a ten-pound note, which she slipped neatly into the garter on her bare thigh. Then she had gone, back to slither down the fireman's pole as she waited for another customer. With my usual interest in fees, I discovered that Christine had to pay the crazy crocodile a hundred pounds a night for the pleasure of sliding down one of the fireman's poles. She hoped to make that back and maybe double it by requests to dance, not only, I was sure, for a couple of hapless lawyers in search of information. Excuse me, my dear. Bonnie Bernard decided to invest in another dancer. But I set off through the darkness and with the music pounding in my ears in search of the gents. Outside the dining and dancing area, I encountered a maze of shadowy corridors with lines of unmarked doors. Growing desperate, I pulled one of them open, hoping to strike lucky or at least find someone to ask. I saw no gleaming porcelain and heard no trickling water. All I saw was an untidy, ill-lit room. There was a table full of loaded ashtrays, half-emptied glasses, and bits and pieces of abbreviated costumes. Two girls, taking time off, were huddled into sweaters, smoking busily and chatting to another older woman. She was sitting beside a table lamp with a broken shade, stitching away at some minute article of clothing. At first her face was in the shadows, but as she raised her head to look, in considerable surprise, at me, I had no difficulty in recognising her as number three in the jury and my number one fan. Before I could answer, I was grabbed by the arm. It was the club bouncer, Mr. Parkin, who I'd last questioned across number one court at the old bailey. I'm, I'm just looking for the loo. Well, then you're going in the wrong direction. We don't want no peeping toms here. Yeah, right. Not even if it's you, Mr. Rumpole. On your way now. And don't do no more wandering. <laughs> John Hooper. Here. Joshua McIntyre. Here. Marcia Brewster. Marcia Brewster. Answer came there none. I believe there are problems with public transport this morning, my lord. I see. The tube and so on. Yes, uh, I see. Well, well, how long will the delay be? Uh, anything up to half an hour. Uh, well, very well. I looked up at the public gallery, and as I had somehow suspected, the seat in the front row was empty. The suntan stranger had also vanished. Now the assiduous Judge Beetle began the process of dealing with the case of a vanished juror. Mr. Hodinot, Mr. Rumpel, I am reliably informed that there has been some delay on the underground. We shall rise for half an hour. So we were sent off to drink coffee and await events. A 
Up in the canteen, I saw the officer in charge of the case, Detective Inspector Leeming, carefully unwrapping a Kit Kat. He seemed grateful for my company. Typical, isn't it, Mr. Rumpole? People don't even take jewellery duty seriously anymore. I'm not sure. Perhaps there are some things in life that are even more important than jury service. What do you mean by that, exactly? Detective Inspector Leeming devoted himself to the unwrapping of his Kit Kat. He was a fairly plump officer with a cheerful expression, even when concerned with the most tragic and horrifying crimes. He liked nothing better than press conferences, where he could appear before the television cameras and hint at sensational knowledge which he wasn't yet at liberty to impart, and extraordinary developments which were also, for the moment, under wraps. I could possibly suggest a lead to the vanishing juror. You've said nothing to the press yet. I came to you first. Naturally. Very wise, Mr. Rumpole. Very wise of you indeed to uh, cooperate with us. Surprising news, you say? Yes, that might fill tomorrow's headlines. Go on then, Mr. Rumpole. Tell me more. Well, I've got the missing juror's address from the court. Reddington Gardens. That's not far from Hampstead Heath and near West Heath Road, where our murder victim, Pamela MacDonald, lived with her young son, Cameron. You mean we might have something to announce at a press conference, do you think, Mr. Rumpole? I think you might have quite a lot to announce at a press conference. So then I told him. I advised him where he should look and who he should look for. And then we were called back into court. I'm advised that even the London underground system should have delivered our missing juror by now. Their suggestion is that we now proceed with 11 jurors. Have you any objection, Mr. Hodinot? No objection, my lord. Mr. Rumpole? Yes, I have, my lord. A most serious objection. Perhaps you'd let us know what it is. She's the only person in the jury box who's at all likely to vote for my client, was what I couldn't say. Instead, I told the Beatle... That particular juror, Marcia Brewster, has listened most attentively throughout the case. Indeed, she may well have been more attentive and have the facts more clearly in mind than is often the case among juries. It would be a great pity to lose her services because of some minor accident or misunderstanding, which may be cleared up by tomorrow morning. It may be, or it may not. Besides which, I understand that the police are making certain inquiries today, which may have fruitful results. Inquiries relating to the missing juror? I understand so, my lord. Is that so, Mr. Hardinard? There are inquiries being made today by the police, my lord. Very well, then. 10.30 tomorrow morning. But if there's no further news of Miss Brewster by then, we'll have to proceed with the remaining 11. <laughs> so there was a short stay of execution, during which much had to be revealed. I hadn't told the Beetle the most cogent reason for wanting a delay. Although we were back at work at the Old Bailey, it was still the school holidays. What happened that day to Marcia Brewster? I found out later, when she gave her evidence. I spent the night at West Heath Road, where I put Cameron to bed. 
In the morning, the phone rang. Hello? I'm Cameron's father. I'll be round to collect my son at two o'clock. What? I want his clothes packed and the boy got ready to travel. Oh, no. I know he's there and that you're looking after him. Yes, I am looking after him. Then you've got the message. I'm taking him away from your world of tarts and ponces, his mother's low-life crowd. No doubt you're one of them. I'm taking him abroad. You can't do that. I won't let you... Oh. Marcia was in a panic. She remembered Pam telling her about Cameron's father, a man with an uncontrollable temper given to violence, who rarely appeared, but when he did, often threatened to take his son away from Pamela's world of as he saw it, tarts, ponces, and homosexual actors, to join him abroad, where he would mix with some decent people and could look forward to a proper job with a future in an oil company. So, on that morning, when Cameron was to be taken from her, Marcia Brewster forgot about the trial. But what could I do? On that morning, when Cameron was to be taken away, I, I gave up any idea of appearing at the trial... I just had no time to worry about what that would mean. I rang one of the girls from the Crazy Crocodile and got her to come and take Cameron out for the day. I got hold of Bill Catford, who teaches Cameron the guitar, and I asked Christine from the club to come over too and, and wait with me. I took the phone off the hook, and then we waited in that basement flat. It wasn't till about... Two o'clock, that we heard someone on the outside stairs, and the bell rang. Have you got the boy ready? I knew who he was, of course. Pamela had shown me a picture, photos taken when they were happy. And I'd been watching him in court, every day sitting in the front row of the public gallery. He's not going with you. I told you to have him ready. I said he's not going with you. You won't allow my son to go with his father? Why, not exactly. She wouldn't have wanted him to go with you. She? What's she got to do with it now? She's dead, isn't she? You let me pass. I'll get him. You're not coming in here. She wouldn't let me have him. Remember what happened to her? She said she'd stop him leaving the country. My son. You want a bit of the same? Do you? Is that what you're asking for? <gasps> His strong hands were around my throat. Big, powerful hands. I felt his breath on my face. I tried to call out to Bill and Christine, and then... There were footsteps. More footsteps on the stairs. Detective Inspector Lee, haven't I seen you in court? Yes, I thought so. We've got some questions to put to you concerning the death of Pamela MacDonald. Inspector Leeming had kept the basement flat under surveillance, of course, as I'd suggested. And so Pamela's murderer was set on his long road back to the old Bailey. Not to the public gallery this time, but to the dock. I'm sure that was all very clever of you, Rumpel. But when he killed the mother, why didn't he take the child then? Panic. I would say he panicked and got out of the country as quickly as he could. It was only when he heard that Neville J. Skeet had been arrested and charged with the murder 
that he felt it safe to come back to England. Seems rather risky. Oh, well, of course, he took risks. He turned up at the Old Bailey every day, just to make sure that poor old ninth-day Elamite was going to be convicted. It was only when I'd cross-examined our Mr Phelps, the Brixton Grass, that he thought Neville might just possibly be acquitted. So he decided to grab his son, shoot back to the Arab Emirates. But why did Miss Brewster still want to meet him at the flat? She'd sent the boy away. Why didn't she just take clear of the whole business? I think she hoped he'd give himself away. She wanted him out of Cameron's life for a long time. She'd decided to confront him about how Pamela died, and she felt that was more important even than a trial, an appearance in court, and her jury service. Well, that's not your usual view, is it, Rumpo? But there was a child at risk in this case. Yes, there was. A young boy, accomplished on the guitar, whose father had killed his mother. I think Marcia would have done anything for him. Of course, she wanted Neville Skeet to get off during the trial so that the real murderer could be charged. She should have left that to Rumpo. Oh, nonsense. You told me before the trial you thought you were on a loser with Mr Skeet. Well, that's what Cameron's father hoped. But I was soon able to show him up for what he was. No one should ever underestimate Rumpole. Quite. Uh, I'm afraid I'll be out again this evening. Let me guess, young Tom needs a babysitter? He's so clever. He calls me Mrs. Rumpy. Does he? Mrs. Rumpy? Well, I never. Mm. I wondered, is that really a sign of high intellectual attainment? But, of course, I didn't say it. Perhaps you might go to the club and put in a spot of cycling. Oh, don't worry, I'll be perfectly all right. I might call Bonnie Bernard and get in a spot of exercise at the Crazy Crocodile. Rumpo, you won't make that joke about lap dancing again, please, will you? No, Hilda, never again. My lap dancing days were clearly now over, and I tried to keep any note of regret from my voice. During the long legal process ahead, Neville Skeet was liberated, but I never heard that he returned to the crazy crocodile. I believe his voice was still heard from time to time at various other sinks of iniquity, condemning London to destruction by fire and brimstone. But his voice had become quieter. His fellow Elamites had drifted away, and life in our city of the plain went on unrepentant. <laughs> In Rumpole and the Vanishing Juror by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West, his wife Hilda, Prunella Scales, Bonnie Bernard, Bruce Alexander, and Lucy Gribble, Sophie Thompson. Marcia Brewster was Marlene Sidaway, Neville J. Skeet was David Holt, Adrian Hardenot, Sean Baker, and Mr. Parkin, Ewan Bailey. Justice Sloper, Ian Masters, Mr. Phelps, David Shaw Parker, and Christine Hetty Baines. Rumpole and the Vanishing Juror was directed by Marilyn Emery and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. Music